Welcome to Rise, the United Independent Podcast. Together, we are rising above the fear and division of our current political landscape towards a civic culture of unity, care, and effective stewardship of the places we call home. On today's episode, I am joined by Max Borders. Max is the founder and director of a nonprofit called Social Evolution. Social Evolution's mission is to liberate people through innovation, holding a vision of self-organizing communities of practice engaged in mutual aid to improve the quality of life of their community. If you've been listening to this podcast so far, you can tell that those are deeply embedded concepts in the United Independent Movement. And it's been really exciting to develop a thought partnership with Max because of how deeply he's thought about both the political philosophy and the solutions that currently exist that help us to create a more participatory and local civic culture. As you'll see in this episode, Max is deeply connected to a kind of political philosophy that moves the center of power from an abstraction of the corporation or the state directly to the experience of the individual in community. These principles are essential to the United Independent Movement because they give us a framework to organize around that doesn't require us to align on ideological positions. Through decentralization, and the kind of political philosophy that Max is talking about in this episode, we have the opportunity to completely shift some of the most entrenched power dynamics in our nation so that each individual can participate in making our world more beautiful. I hope you enjoyed this episode with Max Borders. Welcome, Max. I am really grateful for your time and to be able to have this conversation with you. For folks that aren't familiar with your work, you've written two books recently that are really relevant to the emerging independent political movement in the United States, the most recent being The Decentralist and the previous one that came out last year or the year before, The Social Singularity. And in preparing for this conversation, I was rereading the press release for The Decentralist and you described that book as the moral mirror for the social singularity. And I think these two bodies of work in relationship with each other are incredibly powerful because I feel like in the decentralist, you've laid out a moral and ethical political philosophy around consent of the governed, also focusing on well-being as a kind of intersubjective North Star of where we actually want to collectively move together. And with the social singularity, you've really gone into the solution space of how some of the emerging social technologies and digital technologies create opportunities for this massive nonlinear phase change when it comes to groups of people self-organizing using the tools of Web3. And so I think put, putting these two things together, we have fundamental ethical, moral, political philosophy of how people self-organize together and what unites them in their plurality. And then we also have a really beautiful analysis of the systems solutions that are available. And so I would love to just invite you to amend or add to the introduction that I just offered in terms of how you see this whole body of work serving the establishment of a social movement that can embody the ideals that you've laid out. Wow, that was a beautifully said introduction. 
so much so that I would hate to tamper with its concision and its meat, its core in any way. And in fact, I, sometimes it's, it is the curse of the writer to labor over the, what goes on the back of a book. And if the two books were bound together, the social singularity and the decentralist were bound together, that transcription could be a perfect way to, to, to thing to put on the binding of the two books. So thank you for that. I won't add anything else to, to that, except to say that I'm very happy that you also appreciated the connection between those two books, which was intentional. And yet I didn't want to present these as, as like a part one and a part two, because that tends to, I think in terms of just managing one's brand and managing the brands of books, people tend to think of a series, oh, well, I've got to go back and read the first one before I read the second one. And I don't think that's necessary in this case, but they certainly are linked. And I appreciate that you discovered that. And for folks who aren't familiar with the topics that I just outlined that you've explored, maybe we can go into kind of the 101 of this sort of the principles of subsidiarity and the consent of the governed and the role that decentralization might play in a sort of restructuring of our legal and social fabric that may be actually more in line with the intention of the framers of the constitution, but that was constrained and forced into a more representative democracy that now with the tools of decentralization could become much more participatory. Yeah. I'm curious where, what you, where you would want to go in, in any of those directions. Yeah. That's, uh, I think a great place to start, especially the 101 aspect of it. It would sound like I'm showing up to this podcast with a tri-cornered hat. It's circa 1775, and I'm shaking my fists across the ocean at King George. And that's true. I'm, what I'm trying to bring in my work is a level of sophistication that definitely updates and extends the conception of the liberal order that maybe the American founders at the, had at the time. And I don't think it's, I don't think it's an accident that, that there's a liberal tradition or an enlightenment tradition that informs their work, but I'm not, I'm not gonna, and I'm happy to say that I'm, that my work is an extension of that and it's work on whose, of greats on whose shoulders I stand. And yet I think we have to grapple with some of the issues of the times. And by that, I, there are a different set of patterns of psychological patterns, cultural norms, and otherwise that we have to pay attention to in this day and age. So to frame that in terms of 101, you made an interesting comment just a minute ago that the Declaration of Independence, and I take these two documents together as a kind of a set of a charters of a proto-nation, okay, that the Declaration and the Constitution seen together were an effort to organize self-government, where self-government is the tendency to, to shed monarchy or shed 
what they would have called tyranny, either from a monarch or an aristocratic class or both, in such a way that that the set of protocols that they were trying to build would successfully allow power to be checked and for more or less individual conceptions of the good to, to emerge or to rise from this set of protocols. As people began to organize into and religion at the time was a very, going pretty far back, in fact, to the Masonic underpinnings of some of this, there was definitely a sense of diversity or pluralism with respect to religious toleration. So the Masons knew that they were going to have people who were of different faiths. And there was this a sense of unity in embrace of some sort of higher power, but that was it. And, the re and there are a lot of reasons behind why they would want to have that unifiedness and also that diversity. So in a 101 sense, it's, this is another project of pluralism. And then the 101 question that follows on from that is why would anyone want to have a pluralistic state of affairs? And the answer is because factually speaking, each human being as an individual is different from other human beings. That is not to say that we're not interconnected. That is not to say that we don't have things in common. That is not to say that we ought not organize into communities. What it is to say is that our differences one to the next mean that we have different sources of value, different things subjectively that we would place as our highest values. And we want to live according to those. And part of living according to highest values is being able to organize with other people, <clears throat> excuse me, who share our conceptions of the good and, and peacefully do. And what you have, when you have a monarchical order from which they were trying to escape, and of course that, that extends back to the pilgrims. And we're talking about, I realize we're talking about a, a colonial society and there are all kinds of issues with the treatment of the natives, the mistreatment of the natives and slavery and so on. I'm not trying to discount that, but I am trying to talk, I am trying to talk specifically in this case about the ideals upon which this proto-nation had been founded. I consider it a failed effort and the dynamics of public choice, the dynamics of the tendencies of empire, the tendency of power to burn out of control, the inability for power to check power in the factional situations, for example, that Madison, James Madison identified with his idea of no angels. There's not angels in government, so we have to figure out how to oblige government to check itself, which is to say groups of people factionalized to be able to coexist peacefully and not fight over. So he's responding in a sense to Thomas Hobbes, and this is trying to put a period around this very long paragraph about the 101 sensibilities, historical sensibilities leading up to this point. What we'd seen is the problem of power. And that is, if there is a Leviathan enough that is powerful to protect the limited scope, rights, and freedoms of those subjects living under the Leviathan power, then that power is also powerful enough to oppress, suppress, subjugate, and so on. 
And history had played that pattern out over and over again, particularly with respect to the imperial powers around the world, because one of the one of the purported prerogatives of empire is to bring new peoples and new resources into the imperial order. We want to do the exact opposite of that with this, obviously. And I don't think that the American founders, such as they were, wanted an empire. And yet, however many centuries later, they sure as hell got one. So I think that's unfortunate. And I think the founding project, we don't need to be have a sort of religious fundamentalism about the founding, but to understand what it was hoping to, what they were hoping to achieve in essence and extend that with all of the capabilities and moral sentiment of a contemporary society. And that's more or less my objective. This idea of lateralizing relationships and allowing people to self-organize into communities of practice, to live in, essentially live and die by their decisions on what protocols to embrace, what sort of internal order they sought to establish, that that living and dying would be of the community, not individuals, hopefully. We don't want people to die, but that people can eat their ideology and have it too, which is to say, you try it out, and if it's sustainable and it works, people will gravitate to it and they will remain in it. And that is the ultimate form of voting. This episode of Rise is brought to you by the Second Independent National Convention happening October 29th and 30th, 2022 in Austin, Texas. INC22 is bringing together leaders from across the independent sector to establish a vision for national transformation into good governance and your role in it. If you're interested in or passionate about moving America forward beyond our current divisiveness, rising as one independent nation for government that is truly of, by, and for the people, we think you should be there. Go to www.inc22.us to register for in-person attendance or get a link to the live stream and share the vision of an independent America with your friends. We look forward to seeing you in Austin or online as we let the world know that American independents are uniting and working together to create a more beautiful world. There's so much to unpack there, and I love that you brought it into voting because for those people who earnestly believe that we live inside of a democracy that is at least to some degree functioning as such, the answer is just go vote. If you vote for the representatives that share your interests and values, then the system will function. And I think what more and more people are waking up to is that that ideal of democracy has actually both perhaps never really existed and is now in its final dying phases and that the ways in which those systems have been captured ha are now so intense that we're in a similar moment to the revolutionary energy of 1776 and what made that moment so powerful despite all of the contradictions and paradox and the cultural context of that time is that those were human beings who were claiming through their relationship to a higher power the divine right of the sovereign individual to govern 
ourselves and that we now have the capacity to connect to that same divine and revolutionary spirit to say that we actually can design a new social contract where that fundamental sovereignty of the individual can actually be expressed and that we don't have to sacrifice the benefits of communal effort so long as that communal effort arises from the full sovereign choice of the individual and that when power is inverted in that way of actually coming from the bottom up we don't need things like representative democracy in quite the same way because the precedents and the patterns and the are all emergent from the individual choices that are being made at the most fundamental community level and so there's a real coming back to the true meaning of politics which is the relationships that we have on the ground with our community and the fundamental human needs that require collaboration. And we have the opportunity to create systems and structures that allow us to be full participants in that without, not through coercion. And I think this, the, the relationship between consent and coercion is something else that's fundamental to your work. I don't know if you want to say more about that. Yeah, uh, I think it is, it sounds, when I begin to speak about consent versus compulsion, some might accuse me of sounding some sort of low-level libertarian or something like that. And I have my libertarian sensibilities. Don't get me wrong. I do. I don't think, I think at some level people don't want to be, I think at some level there, there's a sense of if people really challenge themselves, there is a sense in which it's like, who are this who is this group of people to claim authority over me and so much so that they think that they are justified in making certain kinds of titanic decisions on my behalf or in my name because i cried my teardrop in the ocean every 4 years or every 2 years and expect the tide to turn and it never does because even if my person or my representative gets elected in all likelihood, these special interests that gather in the lobbies, we all know this happens, are the ones who are likely to move the needle most with politicians, not constituents. Now, that's not to say that's entirely the case. In fact, most of what goes, what constitutes the democratic voting and what the people want is really the ability or deals they make, what you might call money for votes okay which is and this is an indirect process but it's basically a system in which people can engage the transfer state i want uh, some voting constituency wants something and so they make a, a lot of hay about granting them granting this voting constituency some goodies and so they vote these goodies for themselves in exchange for the vote right which is you're giving power over to these oligarchs, many Leviathans, or whatever you want to call it, a Politburo. <laughs> it's, I don't want to be too negative about it, but it's, it, there is such a disconnect between the voter in terms of the feedback mechanism of elections. We could talk about that for a whole episode if you wanted to, but it's essentially impossible to, to think that your particular contribution or your particular vote in the process amounts to much of anything. Not only are you blurring your preferences together with 
a hundred and a hundred million other people, you've got a hundred million plus one other people who have very different ideas and want to vote different goodies for themselves. This isn't a workable or a sustainable model. And really, I don't want to say, I don't want to say make America great again, because I, because that has connotations of, or build back better for that matter. Both of those have connotations of some sort of retrograde system. I want to be very future looking about this, but Alexis de Tocqueville came to America in the 1800s or early 1800s, I think, and observed a place where people really did self-organize in very communitarian ways. They developed their own internal protocols for mutual aid associations, so much so that one in three Americans were a member of one of these associations. And he observed this. He was come from France and is, wow, you guys really don't outsource all of your cares, all of your passions, all of your religious sensibilities and anything else you can imagine over to these distant capitals because everything was happening in Paris and the bureaucracies of Paris at the time and the aristocracy, of course, was very much in control because this is, or the aristocracy had been overthrown by this point in the French Revolution, but there, that had been supplanted by this great, these great bureaucracies in Paris. So de Tocqueville really was really observed in Americans something that has been lost. And that is our ability to self-organize according to common interests and common needs. And that is, a, is both individualistic and communitarian at the same time. It reconciles those apparently two different poles in a beautiful synthesis. And yet we've lost that synthesis in a lot of ways, so, such that our idea of compassion, for example, is to outsource our compassion to dis distant capitals and vote for someone who's going to reign largesse on some poor group. Likewise, what's left over is capitalism or relative capitalism. It's a very distorted version of capitalism. That can be another episode. But in essence, people pursuing their own and their family's interests in, the, in market exchanges once you take the communitarian structures of society away, outsource those to distant capitals, all that you have left is the greedy stuff because you can turn around and say, well, I pay my taxes. That's my contribution to the community. But that is a piss poor contribution. Not only did you not choose it because you're going to be taxed, whether you like it or not, but there's no spiritual input into that communitarian process. And that is really what we need a revival of. But people are scared of that. They want guarantees and they want coercion to guarantee this, guarantee our collective compassion. But there's no such thing as collective compassion. There is only individual and intersubjective compassion commonly construed by different groups and according to their own conceptions. And that's what Detokful saw. That's what we need to bring back. Wow. Just letting that land for a moment. I, I think for anyone who's worked in the in any aspect of the welfare state, any of the social safety net organizations that exist to support people's fundamental needs, I would venture to guess that most people would share the perspective that those institutions are mostly broken. And 
are at best keeping people on a subsistence level of survival that prevents them from moving beyond a depth of scarcity that minimizes their capacity for well-being. And what I hear you saying is that through the intimacy of real community, really meeting each other's needs, instead of walking past the homeless person because we believe that some faceless institutions has the responsibility to care for them, which requires a tremendous amount of dissociation from all of our evolutionary programming that's saying, that's a human being, that's a fellow member of your species who's in distress, you should care about them, that we've had to actually dissociate from that part of ourselves in order to live in this hyper-commodified version of capitalism, and that there's an opportunity here to integrate the individual responsibility piece, which is more associated with a conservative wing of our political ideology structure, and the, the, the left compulsion to, to care for our fellow citizens, and that all of that happens through higher degrees of intimacy at the hyper-local level. And so maybe we can get into, I, I know that we both have a strong desire to get very practical in terms of how the, these philosophical political concepts actually land in, in people's lives and the organizing structures that create that higher degree of intimacy, community, resiliency. So I'd love to, to break open that entire domain of what this organizing model might look like. It, needs to contain the plurality and the diversity. And so it's more about a set of protocols that any community can use to self-organize around what they value. And in that way, it's ideologically agnostic. It's just a, a set of tools and practices for any group of people to align. And I'm, I'm curious the research you've done and that the solutions that you're tracking in terms of how that would actually land at the community level. Yeah, that's really... Wow, that's a beauti beautifully put, the way you just put that as being agnostic with respect to some conception of the good, that is really the essence of liberal pluralism, where liberal in this sense is not like left liberal or as opposed to conservative, but rather liberal in, in terms of a liberating kind of function, the, the liberals of the 17 and 1800s would have would have appreciated. But these days, the accusation is that, oh, he's some sort of arch conservative or crypto conservative, or she is, anyone that would hold this view. And it's like, no, the partisans, I guess you could call them the partisans these days, have just so distorted the moral conversation, right? What, okay, so on the left, when it comes to compassion, their idea of compassion is going home and agitating on social media about how selfish you are if you don't support their favored social program and demonize you. And we've got to vote for this person who's going to dispense largesse through the coercive apparatus of the state. And that's quote unquote compassion. And then on the right, it's all, or on the right, like the conservative, the Republican ideas. We don't need to give these people any more handouts. Uh, all you need, we, they need to get a job and this, that, and the other. And we need to, we need to make sure that business is good and 
if business is good, it's going to create jobs. And that is the extent of their simplistic worldview. So we've got the left who treats people as, as almost like liabilities to be managed with great big budgets, replacing agency with an algorithm. And on the right, the idea that business is business and business is just going to solve all the problems. And it's not. I'm not saying that there's not a transactional element to mutual aid. I might pay membership dues to an organization that holds monies in common and then uses a governing process to dispense those funds to those who need it. But evaluating that need appropriately, spiritually, by a community of people who love you is not what happens in government. And it sure as hell isn't happen, happening in corporations. So this is something wholly other that I'm trying to describe that, yes, has a certain degree of ambiguity or there's an X there. It's, give it your best and it will work and be sustainable and you will elevate morally and spiritually by doing the hard work. Going on social media and registering your displeasure with the fact of homelessness and poor people is not the hard work. Going out with your mutual aid organization that you have to spend one evening a week working with to help a fellow member or even non-members, that is doing the work. And that is the only way to restore both a moral order that we've lost and to begin to help those who are the most in need. Because sometimes dispensing largesse is not what people need. Sometimes they need spiritual guidance. Sometimes they need friendship. Sometimes they need community. And sometimes they need to be told, hell no, get your shit together. But we have to know them to find out. And there's no knowing them with these massive structures, whether it's corporate on the one hand, and the relationships are purely transactional, or government on the other, where you're just seen as a subject. And you can go try, cry your teardrop in the ocean every four years and hope it changes. Neither of these systems is sufficient. I think what you're pointing to is what I describe as civic culture. And it's a way of holding the relationality and the plurality at the most fundamental level. And it seems simple at first. Yeah, we just get along. We just, and we just help each other. But there's actually a core set of pro-social behaviors and cultural norms that I think we're in the process of discovering around how do we hold difference while staying in connection? How do we sit with the discomfort of our perspective being challenged? How do we find the shared interests that connects all of us as human beings that around the fundamental needs that we have. And I think uh, you opened the, the conversation that you had with Jim Rutt talking about well-being as another core principle. And I think that's a really helpful intersubjective North Star because what makes a life worth living, what makes it beautiful and full and nourishing will be as distinct for each person as we are all unique. And yet there's a kind of underlying framework of things. And maybe Maslow's hierarchy of needs is a bit oversimplistic. It may not be just a simple hierarchy, but there are a core set of things that 
we do share as human beings. And, I, and so I think well-being is one of those tools that can actually help us move past the ideological conversations. Because I think in so many ways, those conversations are actually completely disingenuous. I think in some ways they're designed to create polarization so that the man behind the curtain can continue to extract value from the average person through the largesse that you described, taxation, but also through corporate greed. And that coming back to well-being as the core driver of what our institutions should all be orienting to and to have a participatory process where every person's version of well-being can be accounted for, that, that seems to be the kind of intersubjective space that defines the civic culture that we're talking about, that shared intent towards well-being for all. Yeah, and I think... I think it's important to to point out that there are that that th this idea of and I don't want to misrepresent what you just said but what I heard you say is that we tend to express certain values certain conceptions of the good certain interests certain spiritual aspirations uh, or aspirations for spiritual fulfillment and by the way I used the Maslowian trope in the book just right off the shelf because people are familiar with it it's i'm happy to use heuristics that are not perfect that don't accurately and scientifically describe the world all the time you'll you'll get criticisms when you try to use simple heuristics and it's like, yeah i know but i'm operating in a certain level of description a certain kind of patterns that people can quickly identify with those heuristics bear with me i think maslow's fine for the moment just for the sake of conversation, understanding that people have basic needs, that these, that there are fundamental needs. And this is something that people of left-wing sensibilities truly do pick up on. There's the idea of the living wage. There's the idea of there's these ba sort of basic constituents without which you can't begin to build other considerations, self-actualization being the, in the Maslowian scheme, the kind of like the top at the top of the thing and maybe there are other more spiritual enlightenment and so on that goes even up further from that and that's fine we could talk about those things too but the idea is as Bertolt Brecht put it I mean I use this in the book grub first then ethics so grub first then self-actualization is the idea and indeed people who are hungry are going to do bad things so you got to look out for the members of your community to prevent that from happening. And I think the main disagreements are, uh, on this point are around how that's best done. What incentives does that introduce? Does that allow people to become, does that allow them to flourish or, to be, or cause them to become dependent? And so those conversations are tough. And they require sometimes a lot of investigation, a lot of studies. And of course, studies are fraught with all sorts of problems, particularly in the social sciences. So we won't go down that road. But my idea behind, behind this is we don't, yes, yeah, studies are great, okay, to help you support your hypothesis before you enter, in, enter into some sort of arrangement that's going to be unwise. But Whatever your conception of the good, whatever the way you want to organize your small niche, and I say small niche in a very deliberate way, 
based on attracting and retaining members to your specific worldview. So if that's a kibbutz, realize that after 150 people Dunbar's limit, you're going to start getting breakdowns in the social order for reasons that are very human. People start to shirk their responsibilities. There are costs to observing everyone beyond 150. People don't know each other as well beyond 150. There's all kinds of dynamics at play in Dunbar. That means there is some sort of communitarian limit to this stuff. And that's what I mean by parameters. So this is me circling around to a point that was a while back, but I I want to put a little bit of a fine point on it. And that is this, not every scheme that anybody contrives and invites people to is going to succeed. So you might be aware that intentional communities fail more than businesses and businesses have a failure rate of about like 75, 80%. So there's your Pareto distribution. And the same kind of Pareto distribution is happening with intentional communities. Intentional communities are communities where people's utopian visions, they seek to instantiate it at a very local level, which is actually quite manageable. And if you can for, figure out how to do that, say with your kibbutz, your, your, your kibbutznikim, which is the plural of kibbutznik, which are members of a kibbutz. <laughs> Sorry about the Hebrew there, but yeah, the idea of a kibbutz is familiar. It is one of those successful, relatively successful intentional communities. But over the years, they lost members for reasons having to do with Dunbar, having to do with the cost of observing and punishing shirkers in the community, because, hey, everybody's got to pitch in, right? When you have a communal situation. And if you're going to share resources, you got to share work too. And these kind of arrangements fail all the time. And we have to ask, why do they fail? And it's like, okay, if you're going to scale something like this, then you're going to have to figure out how to make it scalable such that it doesn't run afoul of those Dunbar considerations, but also realize that you're changing the protocols. You're changing the internal rule sets in a way that causes hypostasizing or a negative, that's a big, that's a, excuse the big word there, but an inappropriate, I guess, way of looking at the system as being something that it is not by virtue of its scale. So saying that societies are compassionate because they have a certain welfare state model. That's just- Facebook is a community. Mark Zuckerberg calls Facebook a community. Exactly. Exactly. That's a, that's an example of hypostatization. It's just, it's it's not an appropriate way of looking at the system. Yeah. The simple, succinct way is, is some things are going to fail. And it is in that failure that we see the evolutionary processes at play. And those can be a good thing. Failure is not always a bad thing. It just shows you that your ideology is bankrupt. It shows anybody that their ideology is bankrupt because what you do in establishing your protocols and then having members live according to those protocols is to see how sustainable it is. And if it's not sustainable, that means your ideology is wrong, or at least it needs to be adapted. I love that you brought the evolutionary frame in because there's a potential for a Cambrian explosion of experimentation and that there's this phenomena that happens in 
in larger timescales of evolution that I think is also happening at, a, at the level of human social evolution, where at a mass extinction event, immediately following, there's a massive explosion of different genetic experiments. And it's through the proliferation of all of those different experiments that then the selection for what is most optimal is able to occur. And so it seems like we're in this phase of experimentation. Not everything is going to work. There's a, a whole suite of potential solutions that are emerging now, and perhaps some combination of them will make it through this experimental phase and become the foundation of the next iterative version of democracy. And I, I want to lay out for the audience what some of those solutions are, because there are some innovative ways to respond to the Dunbar constraint, where we start to dissociate from that, those communal pro-social tendencies when we move to scale. And so these principles of subsidiarity and decentralization have to account for the problems of scale that you just described. And I know that you've thought extensively about a whole set of those solutions. The ones that I'm tracking and most inspired by in no particular order are things like holacracy, the potential of, of civic AI to reflect back large data sets of different perspectives, things like liquid democracy that, are, that could be based on technologies like trust graphing, where you can actually show the degrees of different forms of trust between people and perhaps even have an algorithm that for a particular domain finds the person who is most trusted by the most people to have some kind of representative authority on that topic. And that could be done purely by people expressing their trust relationships and having an open source algorithm that's easy to audit and transparent and accountable. So those, that's a whole suite of different solutions that we could dive into any number of them. I'm curious if there are particular solutions that you're most inspired by. And maybe just to close that, I feel like the entirety of the social singularity is this notion of particular solution patterns that, that, ha that take a kind of nonlinear path that could very quickly result in, in this kind of explosion of participation and radically different democratic systems. Yeah, no doubt. We have to realize that what you're referring to as the, the uh, maybe I heard this, but if I don't want to interpret or ascribe something to you that you didn't say, but the no, this notion of a design space is really, I think, quite important. And I want to map that onto the idea of an evolutionary fitness landscape, right? Because we started off this portion of the conversation talking about evolutionary factors that would give rise to a Cambrian explosion of different forms. What's interesting about this is that the design space mapped against the evolutionary fitness landscape is such now that we are living in particular contexts at a particular time in history with massive debts, unfunded liabilities, political warfare. I, I like to say this and I'm stealing it from the social singularity. You, you wake up one morning and you, you turn on your phone and there are only two apps, the red app and the blue app. You would be disappointed with that operating system, which I call DOS. 
funnily enough, the democratic operating system. And for if you're, I don't, you probably, you're a, you seem like a really young guy, but I'm young enough to remember when computers ran on DOS. <laughs> In any case, the idea there is to show how outdated it is. And yet that is the system in which we are forced to live. If not forced, the costs of exiting the system are inordinately high, right? The, we have to work in some sense within what's left of the evolutionary fitness landscape to try to experiment with other structures. And yet that external set of patterns, forces, and so on is going to in affect and infect the systems that we're experimenting with. Tough shit. Excuse my mouth. But that is the reality we have to live in. There is going to be no constitutional moment where we can all go, okay, let's get together and have one big, great big convention and figure out what we're going to do like they did in 1787 through 1789 with the Constitutional Convention. Now, King George III, as it were, is sitting on our heads right here, right now. And <clears throat> we're not dealing with red-coated dandies that come from an ocean away. We're dealing with our neighbors, our friends and neighbors, and we're headed towards civil war, as far as I can tell, at least if every time I look at Twitter. <laughs> so in thinking about operating within the design space, we've got to acknowledge that reality and start to lower the costs of exiting the old system, lowering the costs of entering the new system, and those fragile new systems not be steamrolled over by the old order and by old mental patterns. That's gonna be really hard to do. The efforts that you guys are undertaking right now as independence, it's gonna be really hard to self-organize these systems with all of this swimming around us. And yet that is also the problems and pathologies of those systems, what is gonna prompt movement of people into your new systems, fragile and hypothetical as they are right now. So let's, I'm very happy to start talking about some of these ideas because they're really cool. But just to close this off, it's just to say all of it's going to be experimental. It's all going to be experiments to see what can exist and or pers exist and then persist in this evolutionary fitness landscape we find ourselves in. And it may not be pretty. And and I hope that we don't have to see some sort of cultural, socio-cultural or economic collapse in order to begin to start something new, because then that's a hell of a evolutionary fitness landscape to have to survive in. Yeah. I personally could see it going in either way. And I always pray for the more graceful route. And from my perspective, the two-party system is increasingly an emperor with no clothes. The recent revelations of the Democratic Party using their campaign donations to fund far-right Trump candidates to create more of a contrast that, that they think that they can win is such a profound act of bad faith in the Democratic process. Also using their lawyers to kick someone from the Green Party, a, a veteran, off the ballot in in a local Senate race. Is that New York? No, I believe it was North Carolina. Okay, because 
the Green uh, gubernatorial candidate, Green Party candidate, and Libertarian candidate were denied ballot access because of the duopoly, the cartel of Democrat and Republican. And look, I'm much more radical than ballot access in my sensibilities, as you you and your listeners can already tell. But at the very least, if we're going to talk a big game about democracy, having people, giving people ballot access, parties ballot access, and allowing people to explore options in an open-hearted way is surely part of DOS, but at least theoretically, but not anymore. It's a real titanic game of power struggle that is deteriorating quickly. And I, I used to be of the mind, it's like, oh, it's always been this way. We've always had these this partisan strife and warfare and people called Bush Hitler, people called Clinton a commie and this, that, and the other. But it's now to the point where it, this rancor is being institutionalized and the administrative state is, is being conscripted into partisan warfare. That's scary stuff. And what I'm pointing to in The Emperor Wearing No Clothes is that as it intensifies and as we get into this very obvious endgame of the two-party system, making reference to the Democrats funding far-right candidates, that's pretty much peak endgame where the system can only perpetuate itself by rat perpetually ratcheting up the perception of fear of other to the point where now you've so vastly dehumanized the other half of the population that civil war does seem like it could be a possibility and in that i think there is a sense of coming together of previously libertarians greens and other third parties were all competing for that <clears throat> third position and i think with the leadership of people like Andrew Yang, the formation of the People's Party. There's an emergent sense that all of these actors outside of the two-party system have a shared vested interest in these deeper fundamental systemic reforms. And I think Andrew is wisely going for ranked choice voting as the tip of the spear of that because it's relatable and accessible and one of the easiest things to do to create different kinds of outcomes. And we've already seen that in states like Maine and Alaska just had their first election using that, but it's just the beginning. It's by no means where we end. And that's why I wanted to have you on the podcast because you're thinking things through all the way to the sort of post-transition version of democracy that we can create. And yeah. so I think it's important to have a theory of change that includes the kind of low-hanging fruit to course correct the total disaster of our current political landscape while then also building the kind of grassroots movement that will be required to do the full system upgrade and then what i think may come out of the convention is a new class of political leaders that are actually willing to run on this much more grassroots participatory platform and campaign apparatus that's more directly linked to the direct will of the constituents that they're committed to representing. And so I think all that convergence is happening around the convention. That's why I'm really excited about who is coming together in October. And I'm excited for you to be there. Right on. Yeah. Let me, let me, if I may speak to that for just a moment, the, the thing that, that, that strikes me with this effort, and I don't want to 
I don't want to be pessimistic about such efforts. I just want to be realistic. <clears throat> and that is, I do think you, there, there is a large constituencies of people who are waking up to the fact that the emperor has no clothes. Absolutely. Whether or not that is going to penetrate people of across the socioeconomic strata, across what Jim Rutt, this is one Jim Rutt points out frequently, and this, he and I have very different views on this, except for this fact, the fact of cognitive stratification. Okay. It's also has to do nothing to do with how smart you are, which is what cognitive stratification is all about. There is a whole group of smart people up here, a group of not so smart people down here, and there are people in the middle. That's just reality. There's also interest level. There's a philosopher at Georgetown named Jason Brennan who talks about hobbits and hooligans, right? That hobbits are people that barely get out to vote. They don't really care. They just kind of want to drink and have fun in Middle Earth, and they don't really want to get involved with all this other garbage. And it's a rare hobbit that, that ventures out to, to actually care about anything going on in, in Middle Earth, much less in Mordor to just beat the hell out of his metaphor. But you also have the hooligans and uh, that metaphor is just like people who are like soccer fans, soccer fans in the UK, oh, Chelsea, and they get drunk and they're, and they're rabid fans, right? They're absolutely rabid fans. And they, if they, if you encounter them, in, uh, the other team in a bar, the other fans in a bar, you might get into a bar fight and so on because they're so rabid. And, most of politics is driven by hooligans who happen to be a minority, a very vocal minority, but they're, they're team sports hooliganism in politics. That's all it is, really. And so the hobbits, you have to persuade both the hooligans to care about something. And I, I hesitate to use the term meta because I think it's just been beaten to death. But, but take one level of description up from what we do with politics and policy, pass laws, pass ordinances, repeal laws or whatever, and, and go to the level of process, and all of a sudden people are going to sleep. So when you say ranked choice voting, I bet less than 5% of the US population knows what the hell you're talking about. And that's a problem. So if Andrew Yang goes out and he's trying to establish a new team of hooligans and he's not yet penetrated the hobbits with this kind of process idea, which is one level of description up. It's, it's just a little bit, it's just a little bit of a, a thing for the cognitive elite right now that you got to explain to people. And if you got to explain to people something more than you're going to get this benefit, I'm going to make sure that you get the X benefit, you're likely to see a situation in which their eyes glaze over and they go back to their tribal sensibilities that had to do with either fighting the woke, the, the wokies in the culture war on this side or on this side, fighting the, the awful insurrectionist Trumpkin voters or whatever the hell the, the discourse is these days. That's really going to, that's going to capture the imagination, not voting processes. So there's an incredible hill to climb with getting voters to care about processes that can be somewhat difficult to describe in layman's terms. I both agree with you. And I feel like there, I, it's nice to actually have an opportunity to like, please have some creative tension here. Yeah. 
yeah. because I want to be wrong about this, by the way. I think it's a matter of, of giving people access to a different context of, and, and an experience of politics. If you were to attend your community organization's block party and there was amazing music there and community and kids were safe to play and that was what your local political organizing was in was collectively oriented to doing was creating lived experiences of vitality of community of belonging that's a totally different context than being a hooligan match a yelling match in a some kind of town hall setting. And so I think giving people that lived experience of what's possible is one powerful way of getting people back out of both of those camps of either not caring or caring only for their ideological position where there's actually a third space that hasn't been, has been completely neglected and has been decimated so that all that's left is either not caring or being a hooligan for one side or the other. But I think the more we give people the opportunity to have that lived experience, I, the more I think that version of politics will proliferate. And I believe that the independent sector is actually that third space of people who want to be involved, but have I have seen that the only way for them to be involved is to become a hooligan for one side or the other and have rejected that premise. And so I don't think, I think I'm more optimistic that if people are given the opportunity to have a different civic culture and a different way of being engaged, that they would choose that. And that's a hypothesis that maybe TikTok is too sticky and we're screwed, but that's I'm willing to take that hypothesis all the way and at least work as hard as I can to give people those opportunities to participate in a different way that actually feels nourishing and meaningful. And I think meaningfulness itself is the thing that neither side really has. And that's what I think the independent sector can actually stand for and represent and offer to people. So that, that is a, that's an interesting way of looking at it. And I, I, and I am somewhat persuaded by what you just said. I really am. Because I think what you're talking about there is um, because what the hooligans usually do are fight over things that they don't have any direct relationship with. They're fighting over abstractions that have been completely reconstituted in articles and videos online. They get it on social media. They get it on Ben Shapiro, who's arguing blah, blah, blah. And Jimmy Dorn over here, arguing blah, 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 and somebody else. And, that, and they're getting sucked into a matrix of online culture wars and political warfare that they really don't have any contact with. But what you're talking about is starting locally and beginning to organize people who may or may be somewhat hooligans, but also hobbits, and show that there is value in participating locally in reconstituting these systems. And for you, I take it that those can be begin to scale both in terms of membership as well as systemically. I guess maybe where the difference in our approaches lies is whether what you're talking about is going to eventually become competitive in 
the legacy process that currently exists by trying to change stuff at the margins like ranked choice voting and so on. And eventually you get to transform the, this, the Titanic captured system that we have through these efforts or whether what you're describing is, has a directionality towards something wholly other. That's my position, right? My position is that these locally organized groups would, people would come to see that as a replacement for this titanic order that has, has been captured so fully and is so full of perverse incentives that I don't think it's, I don't think that it is redeemable even if a healthy independent center were to grow up. Now, I don't know, I don't want to ascribe that view to you, but it seems like what I would say about both of those positions is neither of us knows. Let's try both. Let's do both at the same time. Let's see what happens. Something's got to give. I think it's a both and strategy. And yeah. I don't think it's fundamentally necessary for our current institutions to reflect the kind of values and civic culture that we're, we've been talking about. But I do think there is a transition moment that occurs. And I think ranked choice voting in some ways just opens the crack in the door for other leaders to make it past all of the systemic barriers that the two-party system has put in place to prevent anyone from accessing that those halls of power unless they have been captured by the by the companies that run the democrat and republican parties but that would be totally insufficient if there wasn't actually a real grassroots movement and the grassroots movement shouldn't have to be dependent on receiving any kind of institutional legitimacy or funding these are the kinds of organizations that if every person in your community kicked in 10 bucks and you launch your own currency, you can actually get a tremendous amount of liquidity out of a small amount of initial community investment that can be used to do things that we would previously have relied on the government for. And there's ways of creating local resilient food systems and water stewardship and community healthcare initiatives and education. Like you can do all of those things outside of the institutions of government. And if we're running candidates that are aligned with that grassroots movement, municipal budgets can start actually flowing to where they probably should have been going all along, which is to these kinds of grassroots self-organizing efforts. And so I think, yeah, they both are happening and can be synergistic with each other. There's an interesting paradox here that, that occurs to me, and that is local, what you're calling grassroots efforts, communitarian mutual aid efforts is, the way I started talking about them. And I think we mean much the same thing. A lot of, when I hear grassroots, it just, I don't necessarily mean agitating for some political change that's higher up. Totally. A grassroots effort could be a, just people organizing something on the ground that the community uses. Is that more or less? The, yes. I think yeah. your framing is actually more accurate because grassroots it more refers to a traditional social political advocacy movement, which is still about changing policy. And I more mean direct community mutual aid, as okay. well as all, all the other forms of commonly held assets and decision-making. Yeah. Yeah. So the paradox that I'm seeing here is that as long as the, this massive indebted administrative state persists, 
it's going to suck the oxygen out of a lot of these local efforts because it's sucking resources out of us. We have, we're living in 10% inflation right now. That's, that's a lot of, and there's very little other, fewer other choices besides raising taxes and raising interest rates, neither of which is going to help people who are engaged in grassroots efforts. That being said, here's the paradox. So if, in other words, if we had more resources going, returning to local communities, then we would be able to flourish much more readily, in my opinion. So even if you had a, what, I, what somebody on the right would say is a bunch of socialists, somebody on the left would say a bunch of capitalist business owners, both of those things were highly localized, that'd be pretty good because we get eyes on it. We see if it's working. We talk to people. They talk to us. This is, it's a game changer, right? That grassroots style of even if it's going to the town hall and expressing how pissed off you are, and then everybody goes out for beers afterwards. That's the stuff of community, right? Even if there's disagreement, but you got to do it face to face and you got to fight over, you're fighting for people you love and you're fighting over different ways of doing it. And you're doing it locally and with people in your community that you got to live with, not with people online. Just things as simple as that are really important. But here's the other side of the paradox. I th actually think that we're much more likely to be this way, much more grassroots and locally oriented if if everybody goes broke. So either we have the resources that we currently have and have had over the last 20 years, more of those resources locally and individually held, or we all go broke. That both of those things are going to work towards a much more grassroots and communitarian mutual aid effort than the alternative. And I would have to, I would have to unpack why that is a little more, but I think the, is that profound need drives people together. It either drives them to fight or it drives them into community. They, it's like the, there's a, there's an old, there's an old saying, some sort of hillbilly shaman gave me one time and I don't remember where I got it, but about the old hound dog who's on the porch, he's lying on a nail and you just hear this old hound dog whisper all the time. And the nail slowly but surely starts to work itself out of the board underneath its belly. And it hurts more. And the, the damn thing just whimpers and whimpers more. But eventually it hurts enough that the old dog gets up and moves somewhere else on the porch. So it's like how much pain is going to prompt you to act to change? And I think we're going to encounter a situation where need is what prompts us to be more supportive of each other in our communities more than anything else. I hope I'm wrong about that because I don't want to see people destitute, but I think destitution sometimes makes us stronger. I have also been holding this view that the more I've, I've gone into research around existential risk, people like Jem Bendall, people like Daniel Schmachtenberger, people like Nate Haggins, the more I've realized that our entire civilization is basically floating on a house of cards of debt and 
an assumption of infinite energy extraction, the price of energy increasing, and the debt crisis ballooning out of control, it does seem like those are only a few of the existential risks. Then there's also climate migration, political instability, and resource wars. That Once you start open, peeling back that onion, it gets pretty terrifying very quickly. And yet I have come to the same conclusion that as these systems that have created a kind of dependency and perpetual state of immaturity and adolescence, of entitlement, of complacency, that as those things start to break down, the ingenuity of the human spirit and the evolutionary drive to survive will force us to innovate and to come together to meet our needs outside of global supply chains, if there are no global supply chains. And I was sharing this recently with Charles Eisenstein, who I really look forward to hosting on this podcast as well, who's a storyteller, philosopher. And he said that he actually did not, and I'm paraphrasing here, I may get his perspective slightly wrong. I'll definitely ask him about this directly when he is on the show. But he said that no amount of catastrophe would ever erase the requirement of human choice that we cannot rely upon systemic breakdown itself to force people to choose to belong to each other. And that the sort of technocratic world economic forum, you will own nothing and you'll be happy narrative is the other direction that we could go in just as potentially as we could go into this thriving local bioregional holocratic system of self-governance and local community thriving, we could also go down the pathway of increased authoritarianism, increased centralized control, increased surveillance, increased manipulation and fear, and that there's no way of getting out of that. No amount of existential risk will actually pop us from that. And it was daunting to hear him say that because in some ways I was relying on systems collapse to be the catalyst for the system's change. And what he was pointing to is that, in fact, that may not be enough, which is daunting, but it puts more responsibility on us who are seeing the potential of this pathway that we could take to advocate for it and bring people together to create a center of gravity around it so that there's this notion of, of a chaos window or a decision window from Irvin Laszlo that in these moments of breakdown, there's multiple potential futures that exist simultaneously. And what we put our energy towards will increase the probability of that potential future from unfolding because of the nonlinear effect of how these, all of these different choices stack on each other. And so I think part of what I'm trying to do with this podcast and in this conversation with you is upregulate for the potential that we collectively make that choice, realizing that it, we can't rely on anything outside of ourselves. It's up to the people listening to this podcast right now to within themselves make that choice. That's the version of our democracy and our civilization that we want to collectively stand for and then create a mass social movement to make it so. It's interesting you mentioned Eisenstein and I hope to meet him someday. I think you were at the Austin event, the Emerge event, 
where he was also, he was in town. I was supposed to be there, got COVID, couldn't come, which was a real disappointment for me. But I've always read his work with interest, because not because I share his worldview necessarily, particularly the means aspects, but I suspect we share a lot of the same ends. What's interesting about him, and maybe I'll get another occasion, have another occasion to meet him, but what's interesting about Eisenstein, and I hope you do get him on the podcast, is that he's really, he really is dialed in with this sense of the necessity of agency in these matters. So he focuses a lot more on the green element of all of this stuff, of reducing the extractive nature of, of corporations and of technocratic regimes. He seems, and to some degree, to be a small as beautiful what you might call green self-organization. And I think you share a lot of those sensibilities, at least some of the com comments I've seen you make. And I certainly have a, an environmental set of concerns, but for me, those I'm more focused on human systems and I probably don't share so much of the sort of notions of catastrophic environmental problems as maybe Eisenstein and perhaps you do. That being said, what's beautiful about starting to get to know folks like you is the extent to which we do share the same sensibilities, the sense of the need for the agentic and self-organizing commu communitarian aspects of this, <clears throat> where we self-select into these communities and allow them to self-organize and start to get really interesting emergent properties. I see a lot of that in his work, and I see a very strong anti-authoritarian instinct among, among a lot of these thinkers with whom I wouldn't ordinarily share sensibilities. <clears throat> and so that has been an interesting thing, and I, I've learned a lot from him and from folks like you in the process. And that's really, I think, going to happen more when we start to really look at each other in the eyes. It is unfortunate that we're separated by screens right now. I would really love to meet you in the old Wesleyan church basement and break bread and talk about what we're going to do next week. You know what I mean? But that's coming. <clears throat> I think those days are coming. And they might not necessarily, they, they might use technology to help us organize a lot, but I think we, I think, I don't know if you've ever been interested in the work of uh, Aji Srinivasan. I'd but, love to uh, as well. Yeah, well, good luck. He's a hard Get man in line. Yeah. But, you know, his is very much this idea that people will meet in the technological cloud and start to then come back down from the cloud and establish these sort of land-based archipelagos of value that will start to get recognition from the outside world some sort of diplomatic recognition, much like the Indian diaspora or the Jewish diaspora. If you could imagine the Jews around the world as being a nation that doesn't actually live all together in Israel, but constitute a nation on their own, a network state, that's sort of his shtick. I think that's good and I think that's promising, but I don't necessarily think that should, can or should replace getting together with people in and I'm not even religious, but I would love to go into the church fellowship hall in 
podunk whatever and start to hash stuff like this out with people again. That's what we're missing. That's really what we're missing. Where Muhammad comes over to the church basement, the atheist comes over from the church basement and we hash it out because we all are different. And that, net, that pluralism is going to exist no matter what. So what are the values around which we begin to circle? What do we center on as a people, if not our religion and our skin color and all these other distractions that are dividing us and causing us to otherize each other? And that is this desire for peace, freedom, and abundance. And stewardship of the planet. <laughs> Thanks for tacking that one on. No problem. I've been on a long journey with a lot of different indigenous wisdom traditions and have had teachers like Joanna Macy who have a deeply ecological metaphysics. And so that's been a big part of my journey. And, and yet what defines my devotion to civic culture is less about my perspective about our responsibility to steward our environment and more about what is the context of collaboration that maximizes for what everyone cares about within their agency and from and be having choice at the center of that the beautiful thing that, that does is it creates the space for us to meet each other in those first principles because we actually can't hash these things out from inside of our individual ideological perspective that's what i've discovered at least i'm i the ken wilbur turn of phrase everyone is right what i take that to mean is everyone inside of their worldview based on their cultural conditioning the context of their childhood family dynamics biology is going to have a different experience and perspective and the more we have the capacity to honor and unpack and understand why each of us hold those different perspectives more of us will get more of what we want and so you and someone like charles eisenstein who may disagree about a whole number of things can actually be in the same political movement because of your devotion to choice itself and i think that's the powerful stitching together of these various movements that feels like the thing that hasn't happened before and makes the independent sector the thing that i'm most excited about in terms of creating large-scale political transformation is that like deep cultural pattern of how we honor and respect each other's choices beautiful yeah absolutely i wanted to talk a little bit about the cool ways that people can organize themselves using protocol design. I would love for you to share whatever you want to share around, around protocol design and any of the sort of vast array of solution patterns that you're tracking from holacracy to, yeah, whatever you want to share. Yeah, it's, I think, so let's start with holacracy. I happened to learn about that from, I actually work for a guy who practices a form of self-management called self-management. Okay. And he's a tomato grower out in California, or to, rather tomato processor out in California, has an empire of pumping blood, tomato sauce throughout the country like blood on an industrial scale. 
But what's interesting about this guy is he, he, uh, he runs a company or the company runs itself. Basically he's a brilliant guy. So he can just jump around and intercede on all manner of things involving the country of the company. Cause he knows it inside and out. But one of his greatest innovations, and this is something that I wanted to say earlier and didn't, is that some of the most profound innovations that we, that the, some of our circumstances are going to force us into is not just the innovation of cool things like web mics and, and this software that is allowing us to, to speak right now with each other across time and space, but also the innovations of the way we organize ourselves socially. So in the seventies, when he started to build this company, he instituted a policy of no bosses, no formal hierarchy. And most people who work in corporations are going to be like, how the hell did you do that? He's like, he basically applied two sets of principles. And then around that two sets of principles, don't threaten people with their job, which is basically ahimsa from the Vedic traditions, don't harm others and don't threaten to harm others in thought, word, or deed, and honor your commitments. Okay. And then around that, he builds processes for adjudicating tensions, which is to say you get, you, you start off by, you, you resolve tensions by yourself between two, two, two different people. You talk about it. If you, if that doesn't work, you get a third party to come in like a friend and see if that can be resolved. If that doesn't work, you bring in an ombudsman, someone who's a di more distant from the situation. And in, in essence, it's, it's the common law. Essentially, you have to have a mechanism for resolving tensions and frictions. And that plays itself out through processes. Otherwise, people self-organize into teams based on their commitments. I won't go into the whole structure of it, but it's a beautiful and elegant and rather simple structure. And it's in that simplicity that you do get some play, you do get some inefficiencies and imperfections. <clears throat> but the trade-off is you get a lot of work and you get a lot of work out of some very simple rules. Now, I happen to be friends with Brian Robertson, of who, the guy who came up with Holacracy. I also happen to be friends with his partner, who very early on helped him to come up with it, Tom Thomason. Both of them are absolute freakish geniuses, and knowing them has been a, an absolute blessing. But they both have these sensibilities of what you and I talked about offline, which is asymptotic anarchy. Asymptotic anarchism being we move, we recognize that we're operating in an evolutionary fitness landscape where these, there's all this power organized in different ways. So biting off what we can chew, which is constituting a company, we start off by accepting a certain level of certain kinds of protocols that allow the organization to run. And there's all sorts of ways you can, you can organize according to sociocracy, holacracy, Morningstar self-management, which is what I'm the, what I was talking about with respect to the, to my not boss. He's not my boss. His phil, his philanthropy pays me is the way I would put it. And if I worked for the Morningstar packing company, the company would pay me, but he wouldn't be my boss. He might refuse to pay for something if I re requested resources for something that he thought was ridiculous. But we can talk about whether that's significantly different, the ability to say no. But everybody has the ability to say no in these systems. 
and holacracy too. So holacracy is about maximizing agency, freedom. And this goes back to the founders again. And I remember, I think it was Benjamin Franklin talked about the need to couple freedom and responsibility, that these were two sides of the same coin, right? And freedom without responsibility is just license. It doesn't make any sense because you have to live in a world with other people and you have to take responsibility for your actions. And this is really the way holacracy configures things. People have roles and those roles are really their, I guess you could call it property rights in their domain of activity. So you might have a role that's marketing and you own and govern marketing within the firm and no CEO, nobody else can tell you how to do your job of course, you're accountable for that role because if you're not successfully marketing, the market will tell you as much that you're not doing your job well because you're responsible for marketing or that you need more resources or whatever. And there's a, there are a set of processes, two main sets of processes. There's, I think governance is one process in holacracy and, and taking individual actions is the other. The long and short of it is, sorry. Tactical. I believe it's tactical. Yeah. 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 Thank you. Thank you. And so the long and short of it for those who don't want to get into the, to the details, meat and potatoes of systems is that it's a set of protocols designed to evolve the organization to maximize its meeting the mission, which is the only boss, right? The organization's mission is the boss. Nobody else is the boss. Otherwise, you are completely self-sovereign, but your sovereignty is constrained by budgets, by normal things that are constrained people within a firm, but also the rules that get established through governance meetings, as well as whether or not you're satisfying your contribution of realizing or instantiating the mission, which is reflected in profit, and it's also reflected in purpose. And in holocratic organizations, they refer frequently to purpose, mission, and purpose being synonymous. So you're almost asked, it almost, it can ask more of you in a holocratic setting rather than less. You might not have someone barking orders at you and assigning you tasks, loading up your plate, but there's also no buck passing and all that stuff. You are... You have sovereignty over your domain of activity, over your role, and your group of small group of people, which they call a circle. And this goes into the sort of Holonic aspect of how an organization self-govern. And Holonic, for those who aren't familiar, is that each role can also be a circle and it can keep nesting down inside of itself. So you could have circles within circles. Exactly. And we're not completely aware of what the scaling limits of that are. Some argue that makes holacracy more scalable than traditional hierarchies because we know that traditional hierarchies break down command and control breaks down due to information problems due to all manner of other pathologies and likewise holacracy could have its own problems and scaling limits but from a complexity science standpoint it seems to be rather a leveling up the problem with holacracy however with respect to any given person who works in a holocratic institution is that it's a lot to internalize a lot and a lot of rehabituating yourself out of just taking orders and doing the work, right? Which is the traditional firm or the traditional organization. 
hierarchical bureaucracies, command and control, whatever you want to describe, like traditional firms and traditional governance structures, even government, that is really not not sustainable in any appreciable sense. The question is whether or not these self-organizing or self-holocratic style organizations are more scalable. I think that they probably are, but that's just theoretical. We have to see just how big they can grow. Then the question becomes, if holocratic organization is scalable, can it scale to the level of society? And if it can, does that recommend that holacracy in some sense could be a kind of replacement for the legacy systems that are currently revealing all their pathology, which as you said before, the emperor has no clothes and all that jazz. So interesting set of questions around that. I'll leave it at that. The end point that I think you're describing with the social singularity is not necessarily a, a one world government, but a patchwork of self-sovereign organizations that are clusters of purpose, non-coercive, consent-based groups of people that eventually over time may form a kind of lattice patchwork of relationships that will eventually shift how we run every business, run every community organization, where there'll be less of a distinction between for-profit and non-profit and government. They're just the base code of people coming together to achieve a shared purpose. I did an episode of my personal podcast called Omniharmonic with someone named Ale Borda. And that episode was all about the purpose economy and the way that DAOs and Web3 are shifting the game dynamics of how people make choices of where to contribute value if you actually have a choice between should i do i contribute value to a company where i don't have agency and the surplus of value created by my labor is mostly captured and i don't have a lot of mobility or decision making power versus an institutional model where i do have agency the surplus value i create i own directly as equity and I can actually be fully devoted to a purpose that I really believe in, that I'm not just yes. doing a paycheck. And I think once those tools proliferate and people look at those two options, like what's more evolutionarily fit to what people truly desire? And I think it's exactly. that. Oh, that's so beautiful, man. I love that. This is, this is like, I think Chom Noam Chomsky has an admirable brain. I just wrote a big piece on him. I've got to figure out where to shop it. But he's an he's a syndicalist, right? Which is a form of anarchism that is really just about seizing the means of production, and then of certain firms, and then having them be democratically controlled. I can't think of anything more stupid as a system, and it's not. They can, I can think of more worse systems, but for running an organization, it's. I just want to go. Chomsky, haven't you ever heard of holacracy? Haven't you ever heard of sociocracy? Haven't you ever heard of because not because his instincts about the the exploit exploitative nature 
of these sort of feudal corporations is that, that he, he's right about that to some degree, but that what he, the, he seems to have this like notion of a one true way as an alternative. Okay, but these are already legal. They're democratically run worker cooperatives, and they're just not that, that many of them. And the reason is not that many of them is because they're hard to start up, they're hard to maintain, and they're generally not that profitable for the group of people who are voters. So they exist, but they're not like, they're not wonderful. So it's like the way we started this conversation is, okay, Chomsky, okay, Marxist, okay, anybody, test your ideas in the evolutionary fitness landscape by conceiving of organizations according to your idea of what is best practices and protocols and opting into those. The Web3 space, as you put it, is a, an incredibly fruitful space for beginning to experiment with these because we've got groups of coders who want to be able to work together, draw value and so on, especially across geographies, collaboratively and sometimes asynchronously to create something like Ethereum and or Bitcoin or whatever and get rewarded for it appropriate to how much they contributed. And so it's presenting a, diff a different and interesting set of challenges to how these are meant to be operated. But out of that is coming the Cambrian explo explosion that you alluded to earlier. And it is so beautiful and so promising. Right now, Tom Thomason is learning, is figuring out how to marry DAOs with holacracy because they are two very different yeah. governance structures that, that achieve very different results. And DAOs are really good at spinning up. Holacracy is really good at running. And so right now, his group, ENCODE, is working on how to, how to marry those innovations in interesting new hybrid models for spinning up organizations. And they're doing that in the evolutionary fitness landscape that is the U US law by going, of course, to, I think it's Wyoming that has some of these really cool new ways of allowing people embed Web3 structures into the IRS legal substrate at the state level, at least, which is the Wyoming corporate law. Sorry, I banged on, on about system stuff that may bore the hell out of listeners, but this is really where the rubber hits the road is these experiments. I have seen some interesting holacracy style DAO protocols. One is called Orca Protocol. The other one's Colony.io, still in private beta. So I'm excited to see what happens when these tools become more readily available and are easier for people to create their own token, their own community currency, and can run their PTA on a DAO or something with higher degrees of complexity with more teams and sub circles. Yeah. Fra these fra I keep hearing about these conceptions of, of fractal DAOs because, because one of the problems with DAOs is that uh, not everybody in a DAO wants to govern and not everything that needs to be done needs to be governed. So there's a time commitment problem with some of the early conceptions of DAOs that assumes that everybody just wants to be in this participatory matrix, which is why we have delegation for certain things like governance. 
And so yeah. these fractal DAOs are really interesting in that they start to make a more holonic state of affairs, like you described earlier, where people have different responsibilities for different things. And the big stuff gets governed by the group, but some of the small potatoes stuff gets handled by subgroups. That's really cool. I am also reminded of something specific that Daniel Pinchbeck said in the conversation that we had for this podcast, uh, calling into question why more platform cooperativism hasn't emerged. And I would love to have Nathan Schneider on this podcast. I think you might know Nathan from the Meta Governance Project, and he has been really spearheading this for some time. And it does feel like there isn't there's space in the evolutionary fitness landscape for the cooperative Uber for the cooperative Amazon. And everyone points to Madrigan, this very famous in the cooperative circle, Spanish Spain. company yeah. that is the largest cooperative on the planet. And yet we haven't seen a lot of the things that would be the most low-hanging fruit to become a worker-owned cooperative succeed. And I hope that as there's more of a center of gravity of, de of demand and the sense of potential that they're possible, that people who are coming to, this, to the convention who want to invest in these kinds of public goods can see that while they may not get a return, although they could totally get a return with the right tokenomics design, that the world would be so significantly better could we throw off the game dynamics that have prevented this from happening in the past. And what will it take to actually launch the kind of scalable platform cooperatives that can compete with these command and control companies. Almost and just cert a certain number of little tweaks to some of the platform cooperatives. So in other words, don't model it after the flat, these flat firms where everybody gets a vote on major strategic decisions. The, the problem with just de 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 democratically run flat organizations is sometimes that people look out for number one more than they look out for the good of the whole. And sometimes people will vote on things that they don't have good local knowledge about. That's really what I'm getting at. The idea I'm trying to capture there is that sometimes you want to let geniuses be geniuses and do what they do best and get paid to do that while you do what you do best and cover that domain of activity. That's what holacracy enables. Whereas when you organize according to democratic vote, you're just blurring preferences that people who don't have, but a small, comparatively small bit of skin in the game and don't have the requisite knowledge. So if you're voting on how to do some marketing effort, maybe you let your marketing expert make that decision, not the masses. You see what I'm saying? And, totally. and then the feedback mechanism will determine whether or not that they're, they've been successful or not. But blurring together preferences of a bunch of people who don't really know all that much about, say, marketing is not likely to be. I don't think that there's wisdom. Uh, the wisdom of crowds thing has limitations. But I'm also, having said that, I'm not into experts either. So I think that the problem of expertise is something we could talk about in another episode too as well but the, the good thing about letting experts be experts in a context where they have skin in the game is that there's a direct feed, feedback mechanism 
especially in a for-profit organization. This could be and probably will be an ongoing series of conversations to unpack all of the things that we've outlined today. And I think the focus on the local organizing and the kinds of protocols and frameworks that enable that social singularity of people coming together to self-organize around shared purpose. Yeah, I'm grateful to be on your team. Likewise, thank you so much for having me. I really appreciate it. Thank you for listening to another episode of Rise, the United Independent Podcast. This is your reminder that this is so much more than a podcast. As you heard in this episode, in order for this kind of deep transformation to occur, it's going to require each of us participating at the local level. One way that you can begin that journey of leadership, rising into stewardship of the places that you call home, is to come to the Independent National Convention. At INC22, there's going to be an incredible opportunity to learn about this movement, to get the skills and messaging that you need to go back to the place that you call home and be effective in creating real change. So you can go to inc22.us to register, get information on the live stream, and begin the journey of rising into stewardship. Thank you for listening, and I hope to see you in Austin.